it's pretty much impossible to summarize what it was like to work with Bruce Swedeen in a podcast, but I want to at least try to take you into the studio and give you just a sense of what it was like to work with arguably the, the greatest recording engineer ever. My name is Brad Sundberg, and this is In the Studio with MJ, the podcast. So let me, let me start at where my story begins with Bruce. Um, and even that, there's, even, there's a couple different parts. But uh, when I first kind of read the name Bruce Swedeen, I was in high school, and like millions and millions of other people, I bought an album called Thriller by Michael Jackson. And I would sit in my room and I would listen to Thriller over and over and over again. And I always kind of tell people, it's funny, that I wasn't like the uh, biggest Michael Jackson fan. It was the sound of Thriller that, that got me. Now, don't get me wrong. You know, Michael's vocals, Michael's dancing, uh, I mean, the whole the musicianship of that record, everything captured my attention. But it was the sound of Thriller. Uh, I guess I was kind of a weird guy because I liked listening to uh, Steely Dan and Donald Fagan and The Nightfly and Pink Floyd, Dark Side of the Moon, and all that kind of stuff. And it was kind of a weird combination of listening to the music, but also listening to the recording, the sound of the music, how, how those records sounded. And when Thriller came out, I'd never heard anything like it. It was just this, this explosion of, of sounds, and everything about that record was so clean and uh, so pure, it's kind of weird. I mean, human, I always, you know, people sometimes ask what my favorite MJ song is. And I, I usually say human nature or stranger in Moscow. Um, but on thriller, it was, there's a song called lady in my life that, um, that's the song that I would listen to. I mean, I probably had like some, I don't know, radio shack or cost headphones or something. Um, they're probably just terrible. Uh, but I did have a, an okay little stereo in my room, you know, for a, for a high school kid. And I would listen to Lady in My Life, and I would listen to it. And it was literally like I was in the studio with those guys. And there was something about that song that was so um, so uh, emotional. Is that the right word? Um, anyway, it, it was just such an organic, pure song. And it's like I could hear the instruments and everything about it was uh, was recorded so beautifully. I would sit and I'd read the liner notes on the Thriller album and Bruce Swedeen, Bruce Swedeen, recorded at Westlake Audio, Bruce Swedeen. Fast forward, um, I moved to Los Angeles in 1984 and I'll skip a lot of the details, but... Uh, I went to a little recording sco uh, school, and then I, I applied at one recording studio. There was only one place in the world that I really wanted to work, and that was Westlake. Um, and it was primarily because of the Thriller album. So I, I got hired, I think back then, the studio manager, I think her name was Judy Spreen, and I got hired as a runner. And uh, I've told this story before in my, in my seminars, but uh, who was there? But Michael Jackson, I mean, within like the first month or two of me working there, um, Michael is there working with Matt Forger on a project called Captain EO for Disney. I hadn't met Bruce yet, but I met Michael and I met Matt. And then soon after, Bruce was there working on a, on a project, on a movie project called Running Scared. And Michael McDonald is coming in and... A new edition, and one after another after another, different artist, Fee Wable. Um, there's just all these artists that are coming in. And keep in mind, I'm a runner. 
So I'm a nobody. I'm bringing cheeseburgers and coffee, but I'm, I met Bruce and it's like, this is, this is my legend. Um, this is somebody that I almost couldn't, he was bigger than life. So I don't, I don't remember the first time I met Bruce, but, uh, I'm pretty sure it was during the, the running scared sessions. And I know color purple was done kind of in that same time. So forgive me. I I don't have any notes in front of me, but that's kind of when I started to meet Bruce, Michael Rod, um, and Quincy, uh, was, was that little time era. And I got to be friends with them. And I, I especially got to be friends with Bruce and they were going to be starting Michael's new album, which of course they didn't call it the bad album, but, uh, but it was Michael's new project. It was, it was just kind of called the project. And up until that point, I had been primarily in what's called the Beverly building at Westlake. And that's where Thriller was recorded. And even to this day, um, if you go to, uh, Westlake studios, uh, the Beverly building, um, I think it's 8447 Beverly Boulevard. Um, it's almost like, you know, hallowed ground in the music industry. People, they, they sometimes give tours, um, but people just want to be where Thriller was recorded because it was such a, such a monumental uh, record, not just in terms of sales, but people just love that album. So here I am, I mean, in the room, uh, Westlake Studio A with with Bruce. In the back of my mind, I'm kind of hearing Lady in My Life and kind of picturing that session and thinking, this is where it happened. This is where Michael sang Beat It and Billie Jean and Thriller and Vincent Price was here and Paul McCartney was here. So you get a little, for a young kid, um, it's a lot to take in. And you can't be all like, you know, running around getting autographs and taking pictures. It was before social media. So you're just trying to be cool, but at the same time, you're thinking, this is amazing. Um, how did this door open for me? And, uh, and I'm, I'm going to do my best to, to be part of this team. And uh, I look up to these guys. Fast forward a bit more um, into the Bad Album. And now, um, as only Bruce can do, uh, Bruce was good friends with the owner of Westlake, Glenn Phoenix. And, and of course, I wasn't there for, for these conversations. But Bruce goes to Glenn and says, hey, we're going to do a new, a new album. Um, I want you to build me a new studio. Now, if you haven't seen Westlake, it, it's kind of hard to to envision this, but let me, let me try and take you, let me just try and take you there if I can. Westlake Studio A, where Thriller was recorded, is this, um, this beautiful kind of 70s vibe studio uh, where, and, and it's been remodeled, but it still has kind of that, that, that 70s vibe a little bit of the ceiling is kind of low, um, it's, it's got rocks on the wall. It's got a lot of wood. Uh, it's got a lot of fabric. And so when you're in there, it's just, it's got this warm, acoustic, uh, dry feel. And, and it's very comforting. I mean, it's, it's very reminiscent of, uh, you know, when you listen to like Fleetwood Mac albums or Steely Dan albums and just kind of that, that warm uh, sound, which is kind of how I always pictured 70s studios sounding and looking where everything is very intimate and, uh, and right at, you know, right in front of you almost. And that's how studio a was. And so when you listen to lady in my life, the sound of that song is how that room feels it. That's just, it's, it's like, it's like the room is trying to give you a hug. It's warm and, comforting and you want to go in there and and just listen to music or create music and it's just a really cool place to be so as I'm older and looking back on all of this 
if I were Bruce, I, it, it would almost be logical to say, man, we, uh, we recorded the highest selling album of all time in studio a, let's just lock the front door and just stay here and just settle in for another couple of years and keep making records. Well, that's not how Bruce works. Um, Bruce talked to Glenn and I don't know, uh, the, <laughs> the, the details of the conversation, but next thing you know, they start construction on something called Studio D. Studio D is over at a different building, 7265 Santa Monica Boulevard. And it's about three miles uh, from the Beverly Building. And it used to be a warehouse. And so they start, you know, construction. And so now I'm on staff at Westlake. So I go to wherever uh, the studio manager tells me to go. So a lot of the time I was actually in Studio D <laughs> pulling cables and I mean, not like building walls, but it was like all hands on deck. They had to get this room done. So I still remember the big, the big trenches and the, uh, the conduits, you know, connecting the control room to the studio and these huge bundles of, of Belden cable. Um, I wish I could remember the exact model number, but it was just big mic cable and, pulling, you know, it'd be like five guys, you know, with that, that wire, uh, lube stuff and you're getting it all over your hands. And it was just a mess. And, and we would pull all those cables and then the Westlake techs who, in my opinion, are the best techs in the world, um, would solder each one of those connectors into these giant mic panels. And it was just so much fun to see this room come together and then knowing that, you know, the inaugural sessions were, were going to be uh, with Michael Jackson. So it's a lot of pressure. It's a big deal. Um, so they brought in uh, the Westlake SM1s, the giant, uh, the giant speakers that go in the wall. They're enormous. They're, they're, um, they're not, maybe not quite as, they're, they're bigger than a refrigerator, almost like two refrigerators side by side. Uh, just not quite as tall, up in the wall. They're, they're, they're just mammoth. And then just a wall of amplifiers to, to power these speakers. And I'm pretty sure John Sacchetti was, the, was one of the lead techs back then, and John would tune that room, and, and, and Glenn would also. And it was just so, so much fun to watch those guys work and listen to that room, how amazing it started to sound. So... Next thing you know, um, we're in there starting Michael's Bad album, and Bruce is uh, Bruce is in his element. Um, it was a big Harrison MR2 back then, uh, which is a big analog console. I think it was fifty six inputs or sixty four inputs, something like that. Um, and now it's kind of funny when you talk about Bruce and consoles. Bruce had this affinity for a, a, Her a, a console company called Harrison. And Harrison, the only way I can describe it is in the studio world, you've got kind of the, the, the cool kids. You've got the Neves and the SSLs. Those are like, you know, Ferrari and Porsche. They're expensive. They're cool. They have all the bells and whistles. Um, and then you come down a couple ticks and, you know, there's other... There's other boards out there. There's API and and uh, different ones, but but then you get to Harrison, and Harrison is it's kind of, I kind of describe it like a Chevy truck. It'll do anything. It's not the slickest and the sleekest, but it had a few features that Bruce really liked, um, and one of those was the Harrison filters. Bruce loved those filters. And to my non-studio people, what's a what's a filter? A filter is uh, like you, like if you listen to like the old ELO song, um, the one where it sounds like he's uh, I think it's called Telephone Line, and it sounds like he's on a telephone. A filter cuts out either all the high frequencies or the low frequencies or both, and it allows you it's it's like a brick wall, so it only lets certain frequencies pass through the channel. And Bruce was a master at using filters um, so he could get rid of sounds he didn't want and, uh, and keep, 
you know, kind of make room in the mix for other sounds. So Bruce, you know, if Bruce would have wanted an SSL, I think they would have put an SSL in. If he would have wanted an Eve, they would have put an Eve in. But Bruce had an affinity for Harrison. And it was just interesting because he was kind of, I don't want to say alone, but in L.A., there just weren't that many big Harrison rooms that I'm aware of. Um, and that was Bruce's that was Bruce's thing. He, he loved Harrison consoles. So they dropped a big Harrison in there. And I, I, you know, you just have all these memories. I mean, it's, man, 30, 35 years ago. But I still remember a bunch of us lifting that thing through the window because um, it wouldn't go through the door. So before they installed the glass between the control room and the studio, it's this giant window, the length of the room. And we all had to lift it through that opening. And it was just enormous and uh, heavy. Just a bunch of studio guys grunting and cussing and uh, laughing and just getting it done. Now, the Bad Album is underway. And Bruce and Michael and Quincy had very generously allowed me to kind of sit in the back of the room. And Bruce actually had another intern at the time, um, a guy that I'm still friends with by the name of Mark Hagan. And Mark and I were and are good friends. And so we would um, we would basically do whatever we could. Uh, <laughs> if Bruce needed a cup of coffee, if Michael needed his headphones checked, um, we were just part of the part of the team, um, you know, kind of the the new guys. And we were just happy to be there. So during the day, I would work on other sessions. I would work on commercials and uh, other little projects that came in. And then as soon as I was off the clock, I would run into Studio D. And it was just amazing because I had um, complete access. And uh, so that's when I got to meet uh, Miko and Bill Bray. And, and I think Wayne was, was around back then. And... Um, so Michael's team, as well as I think Jolie Levine was with us. And then, of course, you had uh, uh, Quincy and, and Rod. Rod Temperton was there almost every day. And then the assistant engineer, uh, Bruce's technical director, was Craig Johnson. Craig and I are still friends. And, uh, and then Bruce. So going back to my comparison between Studio A and Studio D, Studio A was this warm uh, wood and stone studio that would, you know, like I, like I said, kind of give you uh, a sonic hug in some ways. Studio D was much bigger, especially the control room. The control room was probably the biggest control room I'd ever seen to that point. It had that big Harrison uh, in the middle, but there was room in front of the console. There was a lot of room behind the console, um, there were, I think we had a couch in front of the console for a while, but we would take that out from time to time. And you could bring in, uh, Bruce liked, Bruce had this, uh, this habit. He liked the musicians to be in the room with us. Um, he didn't want the bass player to be out in the studio and we're all looking at him and trying to talk to him, uh, through a talk back mic. Bruce really wanted as many musicians in the control room as possible. And, now, you can't do that really with vocals or with drums, but uh, with, you know, with a lot of instruments that are either, you know, direct patch, you know, like a synthesizer, or uh, if I had an amplifier out in the studio, like a guitar, the guitar player could still be in with us. So that was just cool. Um, so on any given day, um, and this is on the Bad Album, we would usually start the session at 12 noon and that would mean that uh, Craig or Mark or me or whoever would be there, you know, a couple hours early and get the room ready, get it clean. Bruce, Quincy, Rod, um, those guys would usually arrive right around noon, 1145, 12 o'clock. And that's when we would start. Um, so on that album, it was such a big control room. And I'm not saying this was every day. But there were, there were a lot of people in the control room um, or had the potential to be. So Bruce was always right in the middle, at, at, in the middle of the big Harrison. 
Um, Quincy might be kind of next to him on one side. Craig would be on the other side by the patch bay. Then Rod would be there and Michael would be there. I'd be there. Mark would be there. Um, Jolie Levine, I think we had an office for her upstairs. And, uh, and then Michael's security, Bill Bray, uh, Miko might, might be hanging out, um, Frank DeLeo. So that was just, that was just the welcoming party. So now if Greg Villengains or Larry Williams or somebody was going to come in, you're like coming into a group of people. And it's, you know, it's just kind of funny, the things you remember. I mean, it, it almost seems like that could be intimidating. Um, but these guys were amazing. Bruce had a remarkable way of making musicians feel comfortable. And, and I learned so much from him just watching him, watching how he interacted with uh, uh, musicians, uh, even, you know, record company guys, um, I know, you know, back then I think it was CBS when it was becoming Sony, and every now and then they'd send somebody to pop in on us, and um, and Bruce was amazing, and we always, <laughs> he always had a song kind of at the ready, um, and I'm pretty sure, uh, unless somebody corrects me, but but I'm pretty sure on uh, on the Bad album it was usually Man in the Mirror, at least in the latter part of the bad album because we, we didn't, we didn't record mirror until uh, well into the record. And, you know, if somebody were, I'll just use the word privileged to be invited to come visit the session, um, you know, be it uh, one of Michael's friends or like I say, someone from the record company or, or whoever, Bruce would pull up a chair right next to him, right in the center seat and and then he would he would crank up those Westlake SM1s and you just can't even imagine how loud they get they're these big beautiful amazing speakers and they're just thunderous they're they're just amazingly loud and then he would play a song like mirror um where it's just full throttle and by the time that choir hits and and it's just a foot to the floor and he would you know, for people that have been around studios, you're ready for that. You, that's kind of what you expect. Um, although hearing a Bruce Swedeen mix in a room that Bruce basically uh, designed or at least asked for um, and hearing a Michael Jackson song with, with all those people in the room, it's, it's otherworldly. Um, I can only imagine what it was like for those people and that's not to say that I was ever callous because I wasn't. I I loved every playback, but uh, to be in there and just have that, have all that happening right in front of you, had to have been amazing for those guests. Bruce, Bruce was the captain of the ship. Bruce, Bruce was the admiral of the navy. Um, there were things that Bruce did he had a remarkable sense of humor. Um, he, it's not that he would sit and tell jokes, but he, he was definitely, you know, definitely doing a lot of like dad puns and things like that. And just, you know, stories from Chicago. So I'm not going to give you Bruce's whole history. Um, I, I would encourage you to, to read one of his books or do some research on him because he, he was a pioneer. He, he came from, uh, Minneapolis, uh, built his first recording studio in Minneapolis. And I actually went and visited it, uh, many, many years ago. Um, it's still, it, at least it was as of a few years ago, it was still there. Um, but then he moved to Chicago and he learned the art of recording from Bill Putnam. And he would talk about Bill all the time. And, uh, Bill, I believe built universal recording in Chicago and that's where Bruce, and I, I have no notes in front of me, so forgive me if I, if I get something wrong, but, but I know, you know, Bruce worked with, you know, Count Basie and Sinatra and uh, just so many amazing artists. And that's really where, where he learned um, recording. And then that's where he met Quincy. And the two of them stayed together for a decade. And, I, and their first project with Michael was, 
it was The Wiz, which I believe they did in New York. I'm, I'm pretty sure. So Bruce is, uh, he's very well, highly respected in the industry at this point. And, and I, you know, I keep calling him the captain of the ship because he, he's Swedish. He's a big guy, you know, big broad shoulders. Um, when Bruce comes into a room, you notice it. And it's not that he's a, you know, loud mouth or anything, but he's definitely, it's, he's the captain of the starship. He steps in and, and uh, nobody sits in his chair. So he would come in and he had an amazing ability of getting a lot done. You know, he didn't like have a checklist in front of him. I mean, maybe he did. I mean, he loved his little, his little Macintosh. <laughs> Uh, he, he had, I think an original is like a Mac 128 or whatever it was, and, and he loved Mac computers. And so he would keep calendars and, and kind of little, you know, to-do lists and, and things like that. But there was never this, like, sense of pressure, like, you know, guys, I don't know how we're going to do it. You know, we, we've got so much to do. It was never like that at all. It was this amazing calm and humor and uh, him and Quincy just telling jokes and, you know, reminiscing. And it was amazing. You're, you're literally, you're sitting, you know, at, at the feet of giants um, and just taking it in as, as much as you can. There, there's about 10 different tangents I could go down. Um, I'm, I'm trying to just limit this to uh, kind of keeping it focused on Bruce, but... Bruce was, I, I often refer to him as a scientist, and I, I don't mean that in a derogatory way at all, but Bruce had an electrical, I believe he had a degree in electrical engineering. You couldn't, you couldn't fool him. Um, he would bring in Hewlett-Packard, I'm not making this up, he would bring in Hewlett-Packard test gear. Um, I'd never seen anything like this. I mean, we had it in the shop, but engineers didn't, didn't carry their own Hewlett-Packard test gear around. So he had like a, a tone generator and a VU meter and uh, and something else. I, I'm, I'm kicking myself because I can't remember, but there were like three key pieces of gear. And and he would, you know, well, we had like a, a, an SPL meter, a sound pressure level meter. And so he was so scientific and he taught me so much about how to calibrate a console, how to calibrate monitors, how to uh, test everything in a studio. And, and again, we were, we were surrounded by some of the best techs anywhere, and that's one of the reasons that he loved Westlake. But even then, um, and this isn't a swipe at my Westlake pals at all, but they might miss something. So I would, he would teach me to go through the room uh, patch by patch and just test everything. And if there was a crackle, if there was something out of phase, if there was uh, two channels that were, were not um, exactly the same, then it was my job to, you know, tell the techs, hey, you know, we got to fix this, we got to fix this, we got to fix this. So Bruce didn't have to encounter a lot of those issues during a session. And to me, that was brilliant. It was, you know, probably cost the, the project a little more money. But in the long run, it was probably a savings because most of, I say most, most of the sessions um, did go pretty smoothly. When you've got that many pieces of electronics working at the same time, something's going to fail. But for the most part, we, we uh, minimize that as much as possible. So, number one, Bruce was, was a scientist. Um, he, this is something that I just try and hammer into young engineers' heads, is, and it's something that's so simple and so smart. Um, but he would calibrate, he would actually calibrate the volume that he mixed at. Um, let me explain. Back then, I think he was mixing on... I hope I get this right. I don't want somebody to correct me, but I think there were JBL 4310s, um, which is a, an older JBL three-way speaker. 
And engineers, sometimes they use the big monitors in the wall. Sometimes they use little tiny speakers that are kind of like car speakers. And then they'll do what are called kind of near-field monitors, which is to kind of closely resemble a, a nice home stereo, but a lot better. And so and engineers usually have their own favorite speaker that they mix to. So back then, Bruce was mixing to these JBL 4310s. And when you get used to a speaker, that that's your connection to the music. So he would he knew those speakers inside and out. Um, not only would we use those speakers, but we would actually calibrate the volume. So what that means is we would actually play um, what's called pink noise into the amplifier and then set the volume control. Well, I, sh- I should say play it into the console and then set the volume control to the amplifier so that it was at a very specific SPL. And it's he's written about it in his books. Um, if you're really curious, you can go find it. But I, I seem to remember like 92 dB or something like that. Um, it should be seared in my memory, but it's been a while. So what that means is every time he switched to those JBL speakers, he set the volume control at that exact volume. Then you mix to fill the speakers. So you're not just turning the volume up to make the mix louder. You're leaving the volume alone and you're pushing the mix. And it's a really, you know, it's, it's kind of a light bulb moment when you figure that out that, um, because it's easy to be in a studio and just keep turning the volume up and it turns into a party and everybody is dancing and laughing, but you're not fixing the mix. All you're doing is you're making it louder for everybody in the room. So it's a very simple concept, but it's something that he was amazingly um, almost religious about. He would, he would set that volume and it would just stay there. Now, if Michael wants to come in and hear a mix or if we have a special guest or whatever, sure, then you're going to go to the big speakers and crank it up, but everybody's going to have a little five-minute party. But then when it's back to work, boom, that volume goes back, the speakers are selected again, and it's time for work. So I always thought that was a very unique uh, Swedenism, if you will. Um, Bruce was... Fanatical is such a strong word, but he was, you know, fanatical about, you know, the tape machines being properly calibrated. The Dol- Back then we were using something, I think it was called Dolby SR. The Dolbys had to be set up all. So as I got deeper and deeper into the team, a lot of those responsibilities, you know, I, I would take on. And so I would calibrate tape machines, and I was good at it, man. Um, I mean, the Westlake guys are the best anywhere. But when when an artist came in to sing um, or perform, we were ready. And Bruce just insisted that uh, that those machines be just spot on. And so it was funny. I mean, on the one hand, Bruce you know, what's the old expression, you know, uh, talk softly, but carry a big stick. Bruce didn't lose his temper. I I don't remember him, um, yelling at people. Um, but he was firm. And when, if something, uh, was, if something happens and it's out of everybody's control, Bruce is going to be good humored about it and, um, just say, Hey, let's take a break. Let's let the techs work on this. But, but if one of us kind of did something wrong or blew it, um, he could, he could get firm. I mean, it was not, you weren't there to play. It it was a lot of money. It was some of the best, uh, artists and equipment on the planet. And we were there to get a job done. So it was not playtime. And yet it was a pleasure to be there. There were certain things about Bruce that were, very unique to Bruce. The microphones. He had a, an amazing microphone collection. And he had these big anvil cases. Um, if you can picture, you know, if you've seen road cases, um, you know, like twice as big as a suitcase. Um, 
I think we had like 15 of them. And we would haul those from studio to studio. And if he got some new mics, he'd tell me, you know, this was in subsequent years, he'd tell me to, you know, order another Anvil case for, for the new mics. And, and I would foolishly say something like, you know, well, gee, Bruce, you know, we've got room in case 12. You know, there's only two mics in there. We could easily cut some more holes and get, <laughs> and he would just cut me off and say, no, I want, I no, I want, I mean, there were some of those cases that I think only had one or two microphones in them and they were just shielded in padding. So I always thought it was overkill, but then we went to Florida and it was during, um, it was during the break of the bad tour and forgive me, I don't have the date in front of me, but I think it was 1988. Um, and we, we went to Florida because we were going to meet Michael and the band in Pensacola. And uh, we were going to do some recording for the Grammys. So we were going to do the jazzy version of The Way It Make Me Feel. And that all had to be recorded fresh. So we brought a, a truck down to Tallahassee. Uh, not Tallahassee, what am I saying? Pensacola, I'm sorry. Pensacola, Florida. And so we brought a truck from Nashville, and it's right on the tip of my tongue. Uh, Gary Hedden, it was Gary Hedden's truck. Brought that down to Pensacola. And then I shipped all of Bruce's gear from L.A. to Pensacola on, on some trucking company. Well, something happened, and I'll never forget. I think I, I still have the photos. And the truck, it either got into an accident or the stuff was just not strapped down properly. And about three of Bruce's microphone cases just got the snot beat out of them. And if you've ever seen an Anvil case, I mean, they're, it's a extremely durable case made for world tours. This isn't some cardboard box. And these cases look like they'd just been run over by a tank. And I'll never forget that truck got there and I I about wet my pants. I was just like, Bruce is going to scream. So I took pictures. We worked it out with the insurance company, trucking company, and, and he was pretty irritated. But none of the mics were damaged. <laughs> and I was just like, he was right. It was all that just, you know, 12 inches of padding around those, those precious microphones that saved them. And that, that one accident was enough to be like, yep, not going to argue with Bruce. If he wants one microphone in each case... I'm going to get one microphone in each case. That's what he wants, and that's what we're going to do. A couple other things. Um, after, we, after we left Pensacola, I think we went straight to New York. Maybe we went back to L.A. for a minute. I can't remember, but it was my first time in New York. And, you know, I'm 20, 23 something like that, 23 years old, whatever. And I'd never been to New York. And so here we, I think we flew, I don't know if we flew together, maybe not, because I, I didn't fly first class. They didn't put me in first class. But uh, whatever it was, Bruce met me. I think I got myself to the hotel. And then Bruce met me. And I'll, I'll never forget this walk, N never until the day I die. Bruce met me at the hotel and he said, let's, let's go to the hit factory. And so I, I honestly don't even remember. I think I might've been staying that night. I might've stayed at the Omni park central or something. And then they moved me uh, to a better hotel, but, but he, he picked me up at the hotel and we walked. And as soon as we walked, <laughs> maybe half a block. If you've been to New York or any big city, they have those giant grates in the, in the sidewalk. And they're like, you know, for the subways, for subway vents or su subway air or whatever it is. And, 
and it was one of those giant vents. And I'm just walking. I'm like in my jeans and my, my Nikes and thinking I'm all cool in New York. And Bruce grabs me by the, by the elbow and yanks me um, off that grate. And he, he says, don't ever walk on those grates. You, you can't trust them. Walk on the sidewalk. <laughs> and to this day, I, my oldest daughter lives in New York. And if we go, if we go visit New York, I still, maybe I do walk on the grates, but I think of Bruce every single time. So we got to Hit Factory, and, you know, we're in a different city, and, and here's Eddie Germano, the, the owner of the Hit Factory. Eddie's an institution in the industry. Everybody uh, knows who Eddie Germano is. And he's got all these recording studios. I mean, he he's friends with John Lennon. I mean, it's just the whole thing is very deep. And uh, of course, this was after after John Lennon passed away. But you know, I think Stevie Wonder recorded songs in the key of life at Hit Factory, and it, it just so the history is just crazy. Here's Eddie Germano just throwing his arms around Bruce, you know, Brucey, Brucey. And I, I don't know, they called each other Goomba or something. I can't remember. But I'm like, I'm here with, with Bruce Swedean. This, this is real life. You know, we're going we're gonna to reconnect with Michael in a few days. And we're working at the Hit Factory in New York. And Bruce is telling me not to walk on subway grates. And, uh, and the whole thing was amazing. It was absolutely amazing. So we we started getting ready for the Grammys, and Michael was, we were at the Hit Factory uh, mixing uh, the jazz version of The Way You Make Me Feel, and Michael was at Radio City Music Hall rehearsing <laughs> because he's Michael Jackson. And so, and then Michael, and then they're also setting up for the bad tour over at Madison Square Garden. So there's just a lot going on. There's giant, uh, giant posters of Michael on the side of buildings and the bad album is just everywhere. And I think the sneakers, you know, those are a big deal and dress like Michael and Michael dolls. And, and I'm, just anonymously walking between the hit factory and radio city music hall, bringing tapes back and forth. So Bruce came with me a couple times and introduced me to Ed, Ed green. Um, Ed green does all of the production work, uh, for, for big, you know, the Grammys and things. So he's got his own huge truck. So, and once again, (laughs) here's, Brucey, you know, and it's just hugs. And, and I'm just going, how do you know all these people? These are the elite of the elite. And Bruce is on a first name joking basis with all of them. And, and I'm like, you know, and then he's always, you know, let me introduce you to Brad. And, and, you know, and I'm just humbled. I mean, the whole thing was, was amazing. Now it may have been, that same year, and I, I could be wrong, but we wound up going to AES, uh, the Audio Engineering Society, in, and that was uh, in New York. And maybe it was all around the same time. I, I can't remember. But I'm working, I'm walking the halls. It's a convention. So for those of you that aren't in the music industry, um, it's just a complete geek out convention with, you know, microphones and patch bays and tape machines and it, but it's really a who's who, you know, it's just going there to see your friends and see the new gear and everything. And I'm walking with Bruce and I couldn't be more proud. Um, I'm comfortable with Bruce. He's good to my family. We'd been spent, we spent time with him on his boat so we were, you know, very close. My wife, Deb, was close with his wife, B. We had a very comfortable friendship. I'm walking the halls of, of AES with Bruce Swedeen, and, and we can't go 30 feet 
without somebody jumping up. Brucey, Bruce, Bruce, come over here. Yo, it's been so long since I've seen you. And so it was about as inefficient a trip as you can imagine because we couldn't go anywhere without everybody knowing who he was. But it was amazing. Well, I don't get starstruck very often. Um, my girls kind of tease me because they're, they're like, come on, you have to get starstruck. You've met so many people. And I'm like, I, I really don't. But around the corner at AES, who, who rounds the corner? <laughs> um, but Sir George Martin. Now, I'm not, you know, my wife teases me because she's like, you're not a big Beatles fan, and, and I'm not. But I have an immense appreciation. Um, you, you can't overlook <laughs> the Beatles music, the Beatles catalog. And here's Sir George Martin. And he looks at Bruce, and the two of them light up like two 12-year-olds that were reuniting after being apart for a summer. And they just throw their arms around each other. Brucey, Georgie. And I'm just standing there. And I'm like, is this, is, is this real? I mean, is this real? I was starstruck. That's, that's probably the one time when I was genuinely starstruck. Bruce looked at me and looked at George, and he said, George, I want to introduce you to my friend Brad Sonberg. And I stuck my hand out, and I got a really firm, warm handshake from George Martin. And I don't know what I said. I probably just blabbered nonsense, because I don't think I could formulate a sentence. And that doesn't happen to me very often. But I was absolutely dumbfounded. And you kind of hate to look that way. You don't want to be like, oh boy, I'm such a fan. But it was, it was decades of respect. It was just like, okay, I know who you are. I know a little bit about what you've done. And I just have nothing to add because you're George Martin and I'm not. That's what hanging around with Bruce Swedeen is like when you go to... Uh, AES or to the Hit Factory or really any other studio. I took my job very seriously. It was hard work. It was uh, it was challenging at times. He would he would drive me crazy. He would like during the Dangerous album. We had like seven studios going. We had Teddy Riley going probably in two or three studios at Larrabee. Uh, we had Bill Bottrell. Uh, he was cranking away doing his stuff. Bruce was, you know, captaining the ship in his room. And he would just, I mean, at the end of the night, you're just exhausted. You're, you're, just, you're just so tired. So Bruce would say, okay, I need, you know, three work tapes for Will You Be There? I need... You know, we need a, a new work tape for, or two new, it was never one. It was always two or three, whatever the song was. And so then that means that they're leaving. He might be leaving at 10 o'clock at night. Uh, I've got another four or five hours in front of me. And Deb and I used to joke that uh, if I could get home before the sunrise, um, I was going to be okay. But if the if I was driving home at dawn, that that just sucked because that that means I'm only going to get a couple hours sleep, get up, and go do it again. But Bruce would do things that that really no one else. If I worked with Bruce for a while and then he'd go take a break or go on vacation, and I'd work on like some other normal sessions. I would just scratch my head and go, how do these people get anything done? This is the most archaic thing I've ever seen. Because his methods were so refined and unique to him that, uh, I mean, one example is vocal comping. 
And a lot of people have written about this or talked about this. But Bruce had this this method of recording as many vocals as he wanted. If he's on the song Jam, I I think I think we recorded 46 vocals, 46 lead vocal tracks. Not backgrounds, lead. Michael just sang and sang and sang, and they're all good. They're all just jaw-droppingly good. But they would do, and this was a technique that I know a lot of people were doing it, but I think Bruce was doing it probably more or better than most other people. So we would do a song like Jam, and it's funny, whenever I whenever I tell stories like this, um, I try and think of the lyrics. I, I, <laughs> I have no cheat sheet or notes in front of me. We'll, we'll just use the phrase, go with it, go with it, jam. It ain't, it ain't too much to jam. So Michael's going to sing it, go with it, go with it, jam. He's going to sing it 46 times. I mean, not just that one phrase. He's going to sing the whole song, and then he's going to go back and sing it again and sing it again and sing it again. So now Bruce is going to create a, a spreadsheet, and there's <laughs> down, the, down column one, is going to be each phrase, um, go with it, go with it, jam. And then next to, next to that is going to be 46 little boxes. So maybe for the phrase, go with it, that might be track seven. The second phrase, go with it, maybe go is going to be track 13, with is going to be track 26, it is going to be track two. Jam is going to be track 14. And they're going to arduously go through track by track by track, and they're going to build this this vocal. And it's amazing. It's an amazing process to watch. And then he's actually going to, you know, pull faders and mix this comp vocal and do it so seamlessly that if you solo it, you can just barely hear the changes. But it's going to be a perfect vocal that Michael is going to sign off on, basically. It's arduous. It can take all day. I mean, the better, it can take the better part of an afternoon to do a full vocal comp with Bruce. But it builds a perfect vocal, and before you start, you know, questioning <laughs> is, is anything real in life, almost every artist does this. Back then, we used to do it on tape. Now it's all done, um, you know, on Pro Tools, uh, you know, whatever method they're using. But back then, it was tape and faders and old school, and Michael's vocals sound amazing. The one thing Bruce would never use was pitch correction. We didn't do any pitch correcting at all. But he but he he did love uh, comping vocals. Um, now someone like Bill Bottrell is never going to do that many. He's going to do four or five, six vocals, and then just use those. But Bruce really liked to. Michael liked to sing, and Bruce liked to record. So uh, they just kept going and going and going, getting just a crazy amount of vocals. Food. So. When you're in a recording studio, um, the music is fantastic, the jokes are good, but it can still get a little boring. So food becomes a big deal. And used to, <laughs> every studio used to have a menu book. And you know, you'd start flipping through the menu book. Uh, Bruce always said he liked to start his sessions at noon. And he'd say, come to the studio watered and fed. He didn't want people showing up at noon and then taking 90 minutes to order lunch. That, that didn't make sense. So he would kind of have this two-meal-a-day thing where he'd have a big breakfast at home and then work until about uh, 3, 4 o'clock, and then we would order dinner. And sometimes on Michael albums, we would have the Slam Dunk sisters, uh, Catherine and Laura, would, would bring dinner in for us, mostly on Fridays, but the other days, we would just order food. And the funny, funny thing with Bruce, when you're on a big session, a big project, 
you know, don't, don't tell the record companies this, but back then it was just this silly game that, uh, that studios would play where the record company would say, we're not going to pay for the food. <laughs> and the, and the artist is going to say, well, of course they're going to pay for the food. So it was just this stupid game where at the end of every night, uh, if we spent, you know, I'll just say $400 on meals, the studio would turn that into tape costs. And so the, the studio turns the bill into the record company. Yeah. They used, uh, you know, 10 rolls of tape on this day. And in reality, maybe we only used seven, but three of those become our food costs. It's stupid, but that's just how it was done. And everybody knew the game and you just did it. So, you know, we're in L.A. We're right in, you know, and I'm, I'm going back to, you know, like the, the Dangerous album. And it's kind of funny because there were some projects I would work on without Bruce. And it's just like, oh, let's get Spago and let's get the most expensive everything. And Bruce really wasn't about that. Um, but he did love food. And so a lot of times uh, he and I would we'd get Fat Burger. And that was kind of our Bruce loved <laughs> a fat burger with chili. And it was amazing. And, and the cool thing was when Bruce, when it's dinner time, Bruce would stop and we would go sit at a table and, you know, we had an amazing staff at record one. And, you know, sometimes it was just the two of us. Sometimes it was a whole slew of people, but you would just stop and have dinner. And there's, there's something very, very healthy about that, about, uh, stopping work and just enjoying each other's company for a little while and enjoying a decent meal. And, and then he might go into the lounge and call B and, and it was just kind of a, a downtime for us. Then we kind of ramp up again, you know, make a fresh pot of coffee and, uh, keep going. Um, we never had alcohol. Um, we did not have uh, on brew sessions I worked on, um, you know, it wasn't like we were cracking open, you know, beers and bottles of wine and everything. We were there to work and it wasn't, it wasn't a party by any means. At the end of the night, we would, whatever song we might, we might be working on, Bruce would, you know, maybe we're working on three songs that day. And Bruce would call me Braddy Daddy. He'd say, Braddy Daddy, make me, make me a cassette of this mix and this mix and this mix. And then he'd go in the, in the lounge again and maybe call B and let her know that he's on his way home. And, and so I'd start making cassettes. And it's kind of funny because cassettes, they're in some weird way, they're making a comeback. But our cassettes sounded amazing. And we had Nakamichi cassette decks. And we, even that, I mean, they were calibrated, clean. Everything was done correctly. And I would make these cassettes and I knew how to do it to squeeze as much level onto that tape as possible. And, uh, and so I'd give Bruce the tape and we, we printed up all our labels. I'd use his little Mac computer and print up computer or cassette labels. And, um, so everything was done right. We didn't cut corners and Bruce would get into his, um, his, his Ford Bronco and he had this massive sound system. And I still remember the guy that installed the, the system. His name was Mike. I, I can't remember his last name. And so Bruce had this giant stereo system in his Bronco and he'd pull out of the parking lot with the mix that I just uh, transferred, just thumping out of those speakers. And I know for a fact that he would, he evaluated that mix all the way home. And then the next morning he didn't listen to it all the way back and he'd come in and then it, was, it wasn't at all uncommon for him to say, you know what, put those tapes back up. I've got to make a couple quick changes. And we'd put the tapes back up, and based on what he heard in his car, he would, that would kind of you know, influence him to, to make changes uh, the next day. So I always thought that was cool. People have asked, you know, did he have, you know, did he listen on headphones? No, I never... <laughs> I don't think I've ever seen Bruce put a pair of headphones on in my life. I mean, outside of checking a mic or something. But um, no, he just he listened in the control room and he listened in his car and uh, or in his truck, and that's that's how he evaluated mixes. 
the other thing, I mean, there's there's five hundred other things, but um, Bruce, he was he was larger than life. He would sit at that console, and I don't remember what session it was. I I don't think it was one of Michael's sessions. It might have been with Quincy on on back on the block, but I could be wrong. There was. I, <laughs> There was like a musician there, and I, I don't remember who it was, so I'm not, I'm not hiding any names. I just don't remember. There was a musician there that reached over and did the one thing you never do, and he touched a fader. Bruce was mixing something, and he reached up, and he touched one of Bruce's faders. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember this like it was yesterday. Bruce hit stop on the tape machine, stood up, walked over to his briefcase, put his hand on his briefcase, and I'm not going to use the language that Bruce used, but he basically said, if you want to mix the song, I'm happy to go home and feed my horses because that's not how this works. Either I mix or you mix. We don't both mix. You could have you heard a pin drop, and it was amazing. And I don't know if the guy actually said, I'm sorry, or just kind of sheepishly left the room. I don't know. But it was a very tense moment that quickly dissipated, and Bruce sat down again and, <laughs> and continued the session. And I'm like, man that's some Chicago coming out. Bruce could get, he could get ornery when he, when he needed to. But I, I mean, I saw it so few times that it was amazing for the tons of sessions that we worked together and uh, people that we encountered. It was, he was just had this steady hand of control that uh, was, was amazing. So, I could go on and on, um, but I'm so grateful. Uh, Bruce opened so many doors for me, and I, I like to think that he trusted me and that I earned that trust, and we were dear friends. And truthfully, it's, it's hard for me to believe that, that he's gone. But... He was a pioneer. He was an amazingly talented guy. Um, you know, I'm going to tell one more quick story. We were, we were working on a Patti LaBelle song, and Bruce, Bruce hated mixing other people's tracks. <laughs> he just hated it. He liked to record his own stuff and mix his own stuff. He didn't like <laughs> getting stuck mixing other people's stuff. So somehow we got, not we, he got roped into mixing this Patti LaBelle song. And the song was called Kiss Away the Pain. And we were going to mix it up. And, and, and if by any chance Renee hears this, please don't be offended, Renee. I'm, I'm just, I'm telling it as I remember it. But we were mixing it up at Bruce's friend, Ren, Renee Moore's house. And Renee is a great guy. Um, I liked Renee a lot. But he had this house, and I think it was in Brentwood. I, I, I can't, forgive me, Renee, I can't remember. And Renee had this big SSL, like in the middle of his living room. And, I mean, it wasn't even like a studio. It was just, a, like, instead of a dining room, he had this giant console and speakers and racks and cables and just stuff everywhere, boxes. And we go in there. And I like Renee, so again, don't don't take any of this too seriously. But I'm like, I don't want to be here. This is not how we work. I like Hit Factory. I like Record One. You know, right away, I'm having to like trace down wires, and we're uh, Renee had a tech, and I, I forgive me, I can't remember his name, but he was a great guy, and the two of us were kind of getting everything ready. And then, you know, and, and Renee and Bruce have worked together a lot. So, and I think Bruce did some projects there without me, which is fine. 
but the whole vibe was just different. It's like, oh man, I, I really prefer to be in a polished recording studio instead of a cluttered living room. Bruce started to mix that song and he mixed it and mixed it. And I really didn't, I didn't really love the song, but Bruce breathed life into that song. And by the time it was done, we're sitting in that, that living room with that, that big SSL and all those cables and (laughs) speakers and, and the mix was pure magic. It was pure magic. And now here's the funny thing, and I can't explain this. When Patty released that album, it, they didn't use Bruce's mix. And I don't know why. I never asked. It never came up. I don't know if it was a contractual thing or what. But I will say that Bruce's mix ran circles around the mix that was released. So if you go look up the song... Um, Kiss Away the Pain, that's eh, an okay mix, but it's not Bruce's mix. But it was kind of at that moment that I wish I could remember, I mean, it was probably 1991, I'm guessing, and maybe 1990. And I'm looking at this man and I'm thinking, God just gave you an enormous amount of talent because you just took a, an okay song and made it amazing. Now, to be clear, a mix can't make a song better, but a mix can make a good song sound as good as possible. And Bruce was remarkable. I, will, I still remember sitting in Renee Moore's living room and listening to that mix and thinking where I was and how this sounded two days ago and who is this guy that can make a song sound this good. So, Bruce, thank you. Thank you for an amazing run, for your friendship, for your generosity, for your humor, for the love you showed for me and my family, for introducing me to so many people and showing me not to cut corners, to do things right, to push until it's done, and and maybe then even not stop pushing. I love you, my friend. I miss you. May you rest in peace, and may your family be blessed. Thanks for listening. <laughs>